0: So this afternoon I sat in my room and in a sense it's like a gestalt, uh, kind of trying to put the interviews and uh, where we are in the retreat and all the pieces together uh, in myself to see what would uh, arise out of that. It's a... in a sense, a deep investigative process for myself. And out of that, I usually have images that uh, uh, create uh, some form uh, for me to, uh, in a sense, follow. Um, sometimes very circular as uh, the way my mind works, but so be it. So... Uh, I wrote a poem again uh, to really bring these pieces together uh, for myself and hopefully uh, for insights and pieces uh, for yourself. I called it simply, Rivers, Rushes, Buddha Floats. Sitting hour after hour, no end in sight. River of time rushing downstream, holding on for dear life. This inner tube of self slowly losing air, current pulling one out into the unknown. Struggling for shore once again, one lets go of inner tube, no struggle. In pure amazement, floating, quote, hey, look mom, no hands, no feet, no body, oops, no me. When clarity finally comes, the Buddha crashes on his bottom, cracking the center, revealing golden light. So sitting hour after hour, no end in sight, river of time rushing downstream. I was uh, laying on my back on the floor trying to, uh, that's the way I do my talk sometimes, it's sort of, uh, in a sense, an intuitive process. And I kind of went back to this uh, piece about childhood uh, when I was uh, about four, four and a half, I, I actually entered my first retreat, and uh, it lasted for a year. It was a silent retreat, mind you. And uh, uh, more and more these years, I realize how much influence that had on how I kind of see this process and think. And what it was, was I had a, uh, I was actually, uh, it's a complicated story, I realize, uh, was lived in Central America, and when I was taken down there when I was two months old, and so I had uh, a Mayan nursemaid that uh, I learned her language, and she basically uh, was was my mother, and uh, there was a revolution, and... Uh, as things happened down there, and my father had a small factory and and worked with the Indians. And I guess they burned us out, and uh, we took one of those DC-3s in the middle of the night and flew to Mexico City and then uh, made our way uh, to the States, to actually Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. And in this process, somewhere along the way, uh, I stopped speaking whatever happened that day, I don't actually know. I've been back again and again. But suddenly there was this uh, uh, trauma that uh, stopped, in a sense, uh, the outer world and began an inner process. And I actually ended up in the University of Kentucky uh, as an autistic child. Uh, That was the diagnosis of the psychologists in those days. And at that time, though, it really revealed, um, as the years have gone by, uh, at first it was a sense of, uh, you know, a difference, and also there was a sense of uh, not thinking in linear terms, but... Uh, More in seeing images. Uh, River of time rushing downstream. At five and a half when I started speaking... uh, I went. I grew up in Europe, so I went to Switzerland at that time into a boarding school, and uh, then in the sixties revolted against the world as it that time was like. This was 1966, and I ended up in Paris uh, next in a little apartment next to Sorbonne and uh, we would play guitars and sort of read Hal and Ginsberg and Kenneth Patchen and. Uh, there was uh, uh, a world of uh, of looking at the world uh, and, and in a sense, a deterioring, deteriorating situation, uh, that what I saw on the outside was uh, really a sense out of sort of the beat era that there was no hope and that this was somehow uh, a vanishing uh, and a fading away. And it began also uh, this sense, of an existential kind of angst that uh, begins a search. And we all know that place in ourselves where we begin that search uh, for some kind of you know, answer. This is from The Secret Life of Bees. If the heat goes over 104 degrees in South Carolina, you have to go to bed. It is practically the law. Some people might see it as shiftless behavior. But really, when you're lying down from the heat, we're giving our minds time to browse around for new ideas wondering at the true aim of life and generally letting things pop into our heads that need to. In the sixth grade, there was a boy in my class who had a steel plate in his skull and was always complaining how test answers could never get through him. (laughs) Our teacher would say, quote, give me a break. In a way, though, the boy was right. Every human being on the face of the earth has a steel plate in his head. But if you lie down now and then, get still as you can. It will slip open like elevator doors. (laughs) Letting in all the secret thoughts that have been standing around so patiently, pushing the button for a ride to the top. The real trouble in life happens when those hidden doors stay closed for too long. But that's just my opinion. So we've all kind of entered this process, we've all kind of uh, settled down now. And in a sense, uh, those elevator doors have opened for us. And each of us has had some, um, what, stored material uh, that kind of allows itself to be noticed. And uh, for some of you, it's, you know, uh, maybe it's just um, relationship or uh, it may be uh, some change of work or life Uh, or some old, uh, as Mary was talking about at the beginning and we we did yesterday, this forgiveness practice, something that uh, holds us in captivity from the past. And even though we've spent you know, thousands of dollars in therapy on it, uh, it comes back, in a sense, to uh, be examined or re-examined. But many times it isn't so much uh, maybe the story here that's so, so important. Uh, it's this process of insight, of seeing uh, how that happens, Uh, How we begin to uh, recognize, kind of from our personal stuff, what it is that's Uh, happening—not just in the sense of um, that uh, that thread of ourselves, but something that's about all of us, uh, that's about the collective. Holding on for dear life, this inner tube of self, slowly losing air, current pulling us out into the unknown, current pulling us out into the unknown. So you come, you sit, Uh, You get some steadiness. You actually, uh, Mary talked last night about uh, these hindrances that come and they hold us in captivity for uh, long or short periods of time. But as you keep sitting, uh, there are these times when uh, there is just a settledness, a steadiness. Where we begin to watch really uh, this, I use this word, this river uh, of uh, information that's moving. I find one of the most helpful things in this practice is about bringing the attention. Uh, There's about present moment, and there is where we can experience that. And the mind itself, over and over again, uh, in a sense, this inner tube of self, we're always kind of recreating ourselves, uh, sometimes in simply new images. But there are moments where there are gaps and there is the recognition of what's happening. And uh, in this practice when, in a sense, uh, maybe we just get tired out and the mind, in a sense, sort of uh, gives in or gives up. And in that moment, then uh, there is this connection that happens where that that is aware, that that knows, uh, holds to the present. In a sense, a kind of sense of connecting to our wholeness. It's very much a body experience. You know, uh, it doesn't happen somewhere else. Uh, it actually happens uh, in present time. And in that present time, we begin to see that uh, the, the mind itself uh, can create a sol- in a sense, solid views and objects of things, uh, where the body itself begins to recognize uh, already this flow that 's happening, uh, that that you cannot hold. Uh, that is a very true and simple teacher. And there's a word in the Buddhist tradition, it's called anicca. Uh, It simply translates as impermanence. And we all know it in our minds. We all know, oh, everything's impermanent. But what this practice is based on is that there has to be a deep uh, recognition, a deep experience of this truth. And this truth has uh, its own natural, uh, in a sense, reorganizing that happens. So sometimes I think you come here and you sit, and it's not so much uh, about what you know or what you undo, but it's these moments uh, where you... Simply stop. In a sense, you're kind of out of your own way. And there is, at this point, there is a recognizing. Uh, We call it insight. Into the nature of conditioning itself. Holding on for dear life, this inner tube of self, losing air, current pulling one out into the unknown. So every time that you begin to sort of uh, break into, through this mindfulness, which is really uh, in a sense... Uh, a moment of not, we're not making anything up here, we're actually undoing things. It's more a moment of deconditioning uh, that allows this insight, uh, these very primal insights to be uh, recognized in uh, present time not as something that is intellectual but where the mind uh, and the body line up uh, and there begins to be an intuitive uh, experience and a reorganizing around that. This is from the Venerable Ajahn Chah. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe. And these hindrances or mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them but do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them all real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them, hear them, and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind at last will be at peace. One lets go of the inner tube. No struggle. In pure amazement, floating. So here we have this river of experience, this river of time, that uh, every one of us, if we're born, uh, we're here. If we're lucky, we're here for you know maybe a hundred years. Uh, but it is very defined. Uh, right now, as I started this talk, uh, as many breaths as you've breathed is that many less breaths uh, in your life continuum. Uh, so we are flowing down this river. And part of how we experience things is that we have created this model, uh, a model that says that uh, if I get enough unpleasant, if I get enough pleasant moments, Then I'm going to be happy. So I can collect things, I can collect experiences, uh, um, you know, houses, cars, relationships, whatever. And somehow that is what is going to do it for me. And of course, at some point, uh, you begin. Uh, to recognize that's not so. It was interesting, my, in Paris in the, in the 60s, uh, this uh, sort of the beat time was this negative mind frame. And yet it had in it this awareness of impermanence, that somehow uh, that if, uh, that the pleasantness and unpleasantness wasn't going to do it for us and there was some place else to look, but nobody knew where to look. So we're floating down this river uh, as time, and you begin by, in a sense, struggling and thrashing out to grab some stable, and solid object uh, in the middle of this flow. You keep doing it over and over again, believing that somehow uh, this is gonna do it. The same way that out towards the deeper water, there's this fear. Uh, The water's dark, fast, cold. Uh, in a sense, unknown to us, you know, unpleasantness. And so we turn away from it, uh, and we struggle for that shore. You know, only to occasionally, we find a nice rock, and you kind of grab a hold of it, and you go, oh, wow, this is it. You know, what happens? You know, eventually, you get tired. You can't hold on forever. It's not the way it works, you know. They go away, you go away. Uh, It's just, or whatever it is, uh, its nature is that uh, it too, uh, there for a while and goes away. So at some point, we began to get this relationship. we start understanding the kind of that, that this is, this, this river is the impermanent phenomenon arising. And that every time that we struggle and we try to grasp kind of the, uh, uh, this kind of sensual plane in some way, that uh, that grasping itself causes uh, suffering. It causes unsatisfactoriness that can force us in towards the shore again or insight can come and we can see that there may be something else going on here. One of the beauties of this practice is that Uh, There's really no right or wrong. You come, you sit, you put your attention on actually, uh, when we say the body, the breath, uh, something that is, it's not a fixed thing. It's a moving object that's constantly in flux. And you can hold it for a little while. Sometimes you can go into a a kind of, a you know, wonderful states, of, uh, which are very confirming and supportive here when uh, there is enough concentration. But again, I'll, uh, this is from, uh, again, from Ajahn Chah. Uh, simply about uh, concentration and a <clears throat> certain view of it. If your mind becomes quiet and concentrated... It is an important tool to use. But if you're sitting just to get concentrated so you can feel happy and pleasant, then you're wasting your time. The practice is to sit and let your mind become still and concentrated, then to use it to examine the nature of mind and body, to see more clearly. Otherwise, if you make the mind simply quiet, then for that time it is peaceful and there is no defilement. But this is like taking a stone and covering up a smelly garbage pit. When you take the stone away, it's still full of smelly garbage. You must use your concentration not for temporary, temporarily to bliss out, but to accurately examine the nature of the mind and body. This is what actually frees you. As the river is flowing, at some point, as you sit here, there are moments where uh, your struggle uh, is, in a sense, uh, stopped for a while or released. And in those moments, uh, one of the things in the world, we pass these moments all the time. But the thing is that uh, we're not in a sense, uh, looking at them. Or we actually simply, we do notice, but we move right past them uh, to some kind of pleasantness or some kind of uh, thought or attraction or drama or whatever. But what happens here is that as you sit and things quiet down, uh, you begin to see the nature of mind. You begin to see the nature of body. Uh, you see the impermanent phenomena. You see when you grasp that you suffer. But there are these moments. The Buddha simply called it peace. You know, that, uh, in a sense, uh, there's a, a suspension of uh, beliefs and needs. It's kind of a pause between Arisings, And these are very important moments uh, to begin to notice here. Because what happens there is uh, it's actually imperative. Uh, because that's where our freedom lies. I use an analogy of a, of, a, of a pendulum that kind of swings back and forth. And on one side of it is pleasantness. And we'll say it goes from, you know, one to ten. And uh, it seems like one of our jobs is to try to keep it up at the higher level. And then on the other side is uh, unpleasantness, which one to ten. And we do all we can to kind of keep away from that. So that doesn't happen. So we're constantly manipulating, But there is a center point, which is always, it's right now, it's always here that we pass over. And that center point is what the Buddha was pointing at. And it can be infinitesimal at first. We don't even notice it. We come here and we settle down and we see the price of this the struggle of moving uh, you know, to hold the pleasant and to uh, move away from the unpleasant and kind of linger in the uh, the kind of activity of that. But there are moments you stop. And you uh, recognize uh, this pure amazement in floating. Your belief, in a sense, is that somehow in struggling that you won't drown. Uh, You won't drown in this river of being. Uh, In those moments where you stop struggling and you are very precise in what is happening in that moment, uh, there is a natural buoyancy that is part of your nature. And you begin to float for a moment. Pure amazement floating. Quote, Look, Mom no hands, no feet, no body, oops, no me. Uh, The game of comparison, constant, uh, that constant need to seek and to know stops. And there is uh, a deep Relaxing, And that relaxing allows uh, this floating to, have, to be actually recognized. What's interesting is, as far as this practice is concerned, uh, one sees uh, what the Buddha saw in the sense that uh, the struggle towards the shore, towards something solid and fixed. Uh, This kind of inner tube of uh, recreating oneself over and over again. One sees the madness in that, the futility. And one recognizes that center point, that place of peace, that when there's no comparison, there's no splitting. There are not two things. There is only this. And in this, there's no, uh, no past, and there really is no future. Uh, there is this complete recognition that somehow this is enough right now. You know, in a sense, you float, you can, you're safe. Uh, you can trust that this is enough. And so we walk into this practice, in a sense, from unconsciousness uh, to we create this thing called the watcher, self consciousness. uh, To, uh, in a sense, begin looking closely uh, at the mind and body and what's happening. But there's also a place where that does not exist. And you can actually float out into kind of the deeper water, that that is unknown, uh, that isn't questioning what's ahead, but simply uh, puts one's attention and trust uh, in uh, really an infinitesimal moment that uh, is just here just now. The sense of trust uh, is that that begins to grow and finds confidence in itself. Holding on for dear life, this inner tube of self. Losing, slowly losing air, current, pulling one out into the unknown. Struggling for sure once again. One lets go of the inner tube. No struggle. In pure amazement, floating. Quote, look mom, no hands, no feet no body, oops, no me. So what happens when we kind of rest in that? In a sense, unconditioned, unborn. there is a natural understanding that arises out of that. And it arises out of the struggle of deeply knowing the personal, of understanding the uh, universality of this struggle. When clarity finally comes, the Buddha crashes on his bottom cracking the center, revealing golden light. There's a wonderful story of uh, of what is known today It's the Golden Buddha in Bangkok that uh, is in the Royal Palace. And as story goes, in the late 50s, early 60s, one of the wonderful things in Bangkok was they were... Uh, What They were changing uh, what had been a city uh, like Venice uh, of waterways uh, that they began to fill in uh, the waterways to put in roads. And in that process, there was, uh, like in Thailand, every block seems to have one or two temples. And there was one with a large temple uh, on it, and they were going to put a road through it. So they were going to actually move... uh, the monastery and take out an old Buddha that had been in it uh, for many, many centuries, Uh, probably back to the times of um, the 13th or 14th century when there was uh, invasions uh, from the Burmese uh, that came down and there was uh, sort of warring uh, states at that time. And so they brought a crane in and they picked the Buddha up and took it out and it was rainy season. And, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly put down uh, in the most delicate way. So uh, Buddha crashes on his bottom, uh, cracking the center. And what happens there is that they, as rainy season, uh, uh, this monk covers it over with uh, some uh, this is as story goes with uh, some kind of tarp and uh, and as as it does in rainy season, it was raining in the middle of the night, and he went out and he took a flashlight and he shone it on uh, this Buddha to see if it was okay, and what had happened it had cracked down the center and uh, and he shone uh, the light. Uh, this flashlight into the center, and there was a gold uh, reflection that came out. And so his curiosity uh, got the best of him, and he went and got a chisel, and he began to chisel. And what was in the center of this Buddha that had been hidden for centuries was uh, almost a ton of gold in a single image. And that during that period, supposedly uh, because um, uh, whatever invasion, that they the monastery had built this Buddha around this gold image in its monastery. And supposedly all the monks were killed. Uh, so there was no one to pass uh, this story on. Well, it's a wonderful image. Because in essence, as we sit here and we kind of break through our personal um, complexity and begin to see uh, what the Buddha was pointing at and the sense of these universal truths of uh, impermanence of suffering, uh, the kind of grasping that happens. And that there is uh, this getting out of the way Uh, in the sense of um, kind of breaking the identity for a time. And in that, there is this uh, revealing of how things are. Uh, But that revealing doesn't just separate us out. Uh, It actually uh, kind of cracks open the... From the universal, that understanding comes into the personal. And so for the Buddha, he had his experience of awakening. And I always think, well, it's a contract, this whole thing of enlightenment. And, uh, you know, it's a 10-page contract. And on the last page in very small print, it has that you cannot keep this to yourself. Uh, It must be shared. So this practice of um, really of seeing clearly uh, doesn't end. Uh, it actually turns around and looks back at yourself, your stories, all your friends, all your connections. But what's different? is that it comes from this deeper understanding of how things are. Uh, That all beings, uh, due to uh, confusion and greed and aversion, are looking towards the shore. And understanding that it simply breaks open Uh, and reveals what is uh, truly who you are. Uh, And that who you are uh, carries uh, this ability to discern and be clear about these universal truths and uh, respond uh, to... Uh, all beings, that all beings, uh, regardless of uh, what the appearance is, uh, this universal is true for all of them. And so we begin to, in a sense, change our view and create a different stance. And the stance is based on this. Ability to pure amazement in floating that the struggle was self created. Uh, And there is uh, this is about freedom, this is about awakening, this is not far away. This isn't a hundred years. This is uh, you owning it. And then, uh, in a sense, trusting that it manifests. In a sense, even without you, if that makes sense to you. Even without you. Uh, it responds. Uh, that is its nature. This is... Um, four four to eight-year-olds responding to this question. What is love? When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love, love is that first feeling you feel before all the bad stuff gets in the way. (laughs) Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Love is when someone hurts you and you get so mad but you don't (laughs) yell at them because you know it will hurt their feelings. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. (laughs) If you want to learn to love better, You should start with a friend you hate. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. This is four to eight-year-olds. This is Lauren, age four. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) This is Bethany, age four. I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. So I pick on my baby sister because I love her. This is Karen, now this is older. She's age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> So, uh, I think just uh, as a final piece here about this word love, uh, it's interesting in, in Tibetan there are 13 words for mind. And uh, there, there's mind body, mind heart, uh, mind uh, kind of consciousness. Um, we have one word. The same for this word love. And one of the beauties here uh, in understanding it from uh, this viewpoint is that uh, love is not an emotion in the sense of from this practice. When that awakening is there, it is actually an expression of emptiness. It's this clarity that is a state of being that uh, looks at all things. with this recognition that uh, things are not separate. Uh, It goes back to that first night I talked about Indra's net, that everything is connected in some way. And that we sit here and we learn, in a sense, to do this practice Uh, in a sense it looks quite narcissistic. But there's actually a process where we turn ourselves inside out, And that inside-outness is about non-separateness. It's that uh, this is not uh, being in love in that sense, uh, that you are love, and that that becomes a state of being. It's not so far away. They say it's uh, what's it? It's near enemy, I believe it is, is attachment. And so, if you want to know whether it's meta, this loving kindness, or whether it's kind of the uh, kind of the conventional in the sense of uh, in the river as it goes down, if you're kind of uh, you know those Vipassana romances where you're kind of you know you saw some really nice socks and uh, you're attracted to them, (laughs) even though you were looking down, Uh, that uh, that recognition that that is uh, something that is about uh, not floating down the river. Because actually this love is what's out in the center of the river. When there is simply this trust, uh, trust of being. And this resting in, in a sense, the unknown, that that sense of vulnerability and connection, uh, a sense of intimacy with all things, uh, is what's left. River Rushes, Buddha Floats. Sitting hour after hour, no end in sight. River of time rushing downstream, holding on for dear life. This inner tube of self slowly losing air. Current pulling one out into the unknown. Struggling for sure once again, one lets go of the inner tube no struggle, in pure amazement, floating. Look, mom, no hands, no feet, no body, oops, no me. When clarity finally comes, the Buddha crashes on his bottom, cracking the center, Revealing golden light. So let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 1, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.